his own received him not. So we're going to read about today. More specifically, we'll be reading about a hometown assassination attempt. So with your New Testaments open, let me invite you to, just, to turn a few pages to your left to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. We'll begin reading our sermon text today, beginning in verse 14. Luke 4, 14. And if you're using our church Bible, that's on page 807. Luke 4, beginning in 14. We're about to see how God's people welcome this word become flesh. Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all the people spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and, and great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Question, as we begin our time in God's Word, unpacking it together, walking through the book of Luke, the question is for you, how would you rate a sermon as successful? And what would you expect said successful sermon to produce? What, what result would take place as a result of that, uh, that successful sermon? Maybe 
A successful preacher or preaching time could be measured in terms of life change. How that message impacts the hearers and spurs them on to action. Maybe you'd say, no, uh, really the measure of success in a, in, a, in a sermon is integrity or faithfulness to the text, to, to the actual Word of God, just faithfully repeating the truths that it says. Or, or maybe the bar is altogether different for you and, and you're just su- uh, sufficiently pleased if everybody just happens to remain awake throughout the whole message. I think sometimes that's my goal. Um, in this passage, however... Jesus returns to his hometown, I want you to see this, and Jesus preaches in his local synagogue right here in his old stomping grounds of Nazareth, and he asks himself the question, what's the result of Jesus preaching? What's the result of his sermon? Answer, attempted murder. That's the result of his preaching. Now, I don't know how you typically feel after a sermon around here, but I certainly hope that that's not your response today. I I mean, truthfully, I don't know what's more striking as we think about this text, whether it's that, A, Jesus preaches one message to his hometown crowd, and they try to kill him as the result of that, or if it's, B, that as they're trying to kill him, right, like mob mentality, he just pass through their midst, and walks away scot-free. I'd love to know a little bit more details about how that went down. Either way, I think you would agree that there is something remarkable happening here. Now, for our visual, spatial people in the room, it may help for you to see visually what we're talking about. And so, so here's a map of the area where Jesus is visiting. Verse 14 tells us that he went to the region of Galilee and more specifically to his hometown, that's Nazareth. And so, again, I'm I'm colorblind. I can't tell you what color it is, but that big glaring arrow there is pointing to Nazareth. Nazareth is is just a, a city or a town in the region, the broader region of Galilee to the north of Israel, the northern portion of the nation of Israel, which surrounds or brackets on the west, the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you're reading through Scripture, that Sea of Galilee goes by a number of different names. If you're reading about the Lake of Gennesaret or the Sea or Lake of Tiberias, it's all the same thing, interchangeable Sea of Galilee. And and that's the region of Galilee where Jesus grew up and now where he has returned to minister. Much of Jesus' earthly ministry is centered right there in Galilee. And the point is here that Jesus is known. This is his stomping grounds. His life is known here. His example is known here. His father's trade is known here. His family and their names. Now, Although it's not the main thrust of this passage, I think it's, it's really helpful for us to see this little nugget of truth nestled right here in verse 16. I don't, I don't want to skate by this. Look at verse 16 of chapter 4 with me. We read, As was his custom, interesting, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, this is amazing to me. Have you ever thought about how many times Jesus must have sat through subpar teaching in the synagogue of God's Word? 
Probably every time that he was not the teacher. Uh, How many times, if you're just thinking about the custom of Jesus, as was his custom to attend corporate worship on a weekly basis, how many times he would be a part of that worship gathering where there would be singing and a reading of Scripture and praying, and he was just watching around him. People totally miss the point. He was the point. Sitting right there among them. And yet... Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the the Trinity, models for us here the priority of corporate worship. I mean, seriously, if anyone had a legitimate right to say, yeah, I I don't really need to go to worship this week. I think I I could commune with God better on my own. If anybody could say that, it would be the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, the Christ, the Son. So, does this have any application for us? Yeah, I think it's glaring. If, if Jesus models for us the priority of corporate worship, then we, church, ought to do the same. And, and I understand it's very likely that I'm preaching to the choir this morning. After all, you're here. But I just want to encourage you to make this more than just an ancillary activity that fits into your weekend or schedule when time allows and other opportunities don't eclipse it. Prioritize corporate worship. As was His custom. Verse 16, this is remarkable to me, and I think it really helps shed some light on the truth that we see later in the New Testament by way of application in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10.25 tells us that we ought not to neglect meeting with one another as is the habit of some. It's no wonder that the New Testament exhorts us just just to follow in our Savior's footsteps here. Listen, if committed corporate worship was Jesus' custom, then it ought to be the custom of His followers. Do you agree? Again, this is not the driving point of the passage, but I think it's, it's really helpful for us to see the example that Jesus sets for us here as it relates to, to God's people gathering and, and committing to gathering on a regular basis. Now, we also ought not to miss the major, major thematic emphasis that Luke just keeps bringing up like a broken record throughout his gospel up to this point, namely, Jesus' inseparable connection to the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14 with me. We've just read about the the account of his temptation in the wilderness, and, and we read, he returned in the power of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, to Galilee. Verse 18, as he begins to, to, to read from the scroll of the book of the prophet Isaiah, he's handed the scroll, and he's, he's looking for the spot that he wants to select. He's choosing where to read from, and where, where does he choose? He, well, he chooses Isaiah 61. He quotes from that passage where it just so happens to say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me, Isaiah 61.1. Suffice it to say, 
the key, friends, to the transformative power of Jesus' ministry is God the Spirit. He's always the key to life transformation. Now, obviously, or I hope it's obvious to you, Jesus is anointed with this Holy Spirit of God in a unique and unprecedented way. You don't have the Spirit like Jesus has the Spirit. He is filled with the Spirit to the fullest measure. So much so, in fact, that Scripture elsewhere calls the Holy Spirit, one of the the Spirit's names is actually the Spirit of Christ. Let me just give you a quick example here. This is right out of Romans chapter 9. Paul writes, under the direction of the same Spirit we're talking about, you, however, are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit. That's a reference to who? To whom? The Holy Spirit. But look at how the same Spirit is is referred to three different ways within the same context, within the same verse. You're not of the flesh, Paul writes. You're of the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God, who's the same as the Spirit, dwells in you. Anyone who does not have, now we're saying the Spirit of Christ. All one and the same. All used interchangeably. The Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of God. The Spirit. Jesus is so united with the Spirit, the same in, in essence and form, that the Spirit is even called His Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. Now, That's not true of you. That's not true of me. But I think we can latch on to some pretty simple application as we move forward here. Although we're never going to have the measure of of the Spirit that Jesus has, we should recognize, friends, how desperately, how desperately we need the Spirit's guidance and His power in our lives as well. I mean, if if Jesus is intent on ministering in His earthly life, lockstep with the Spirit of God, then how much more so ought we to be dependent upon the Spirit's leading, the Spirit's power to walk faithfully with the Lord in our own lives? give you just a a brief snippet, and and this is by no means a a full account of what the Holy Spirit uh, does, but let me just remind you, the Holy Spirit who indwells every follower of Jesus is the Spirit who gives us the power to have victory over sin. That's Galatians 5. He's the Spirit who's our helper. He's our comforter. He's our teacher, Luke 14. He's the Spirit. This same Spirit gives us assurance of salvation. How do you know? I mean, the stake of eternity, these stakes are high. How do you know that you know that you know that you belong to God? Well, that's the Spirit's ministry. That's the Spirit's work. Romans 8.16, the Spirit that He's planted in you in Christ cries out to the Father, Father, Abba, you're, you're mine. I belong to you. It's the Spirit which which empowers us, enables us to bear fruit in our everyday lives. We say it often around here, you can't white-knuckle your way into godliness. The only prayer you have or I have of living the life that God intends is that we would be filled with the Spirit of God to give us everything we need 
to do the work He set before us. It's the Spirit which empowers us and, and apportions to us spiritual gifts. First Corinthians 12, 7 and 11. Again, we, we just keep on going on and on and on. Again, not an exhaustive list. What I'm trying to say is, you're not saved. You're not right with God if the Holy Spirit of God has not drawn you into Christ and changed you and regenerated your heart. And you can't possibly live the life that He's called you to live without complete and utter dependence upon this same Spirit. Jesus' earthly ministry is just saturated with references to God the Spirit. So you ask yourself the question, well, although I can't be that, how can I keep in step with, to use biblical language elsewhere, how can I be filled with, controlled by the Spirit of God so that I can walk faithfully through life? Well, I mean, that's a big question, and it's not the focus of our passage today, but, but I'll just give you one little verse if you want to explore this further. I reference this often. I think this, is, this verse is a very big deal. Luke eleven thirteen. Jesus speaking later in Luke's Gospel, he says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You want to be filled with the Spirit? You want to keep in step with the Spirit? You want to be controlled by the Spirit? What's the Rx? Jesus says, ask. Pray. You can't manufacture it. Come dependently in prayer and ask the Good Father to give you the greatest gift, the gift of Himself, of His Spirit. Alright, let's, let's get to the, the nuts and bolts of Jesus' sermon here to His hometown crowd. In verse 17, we see that He unrolls the scroll it's like the first century version of he flipped his Bible open to or he powered up his uh, online Bible. He scrolled. He found the place in the scroll where very specific words were written. In other words, Jesus is choosing particularly, intently, where to read from in this, in this prophecy of Isaiah. And, and he's about to apply this hand-chosen, hand-selected Scripture to Himself. Now, we've got to see this. this is, you miss this and you miss the whole, you miss the big idea. The passage here that Jesus selects to read from Isaiah's prophecy is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Maybe that's in the footnotes of your Bible, if you've got a study Bible or a Bible that has some cross-references or footnotes. Why is that important? Why is it important that Jesus is, is reading from, quoting from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2? Well, you've got to understand, this particular passage from Isaiah 61 is, <laughs> contains God's glorious promise. This passage, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, looks ahead in the cosmic plan of God for redemption of humanity to holistic deliverance. Look at some of the categories of deliverance that's happening here in Isaiah 61. The poor get delivered. The prisoners get freed. The blind can see. The oppressed 
find relief. Isn't it beautiful? But it's not just beautiful. This is also, this passage in Isaiah 61, got to see this, it's a messianic prophecy. In other words, it's a prophecy directly pointing to the Messiah. This isn't just referring to some bright day in Israel's future. It's directly pointing to, directly linked up with this messianic age that the Holy Spirit of God leads Isaiah to look forward to in the Spirit. This is is amazing stuff that's supposed to be fulfilled in the Messiah. It's no wonder then, look at verse 20, that everyone's eyes are glued on Jesus. He's reading this passage. He's reading about the Messiah. He's reading about deliverance. He's pointing to their future hope and and restoration. And Jesus says, today, like now, this Scripture is fulfilled in your very hearing. You Nazarites, that's wrong. You people from Nazareth. In your very hearing, I am here, and I'm here for the purpose of ushering in the Messianic age. Translation. Please see this. Jesus is saying clearly, in the the most emphatic terms possible, I am the Messiah. That's what he's saying. This verse is about the one to bring in the age to come. Here I am. Today, this Scripture is fulfilled. Do you see it? This is a staggering statement. I like how one biblical commentator, Philip Ryken, puts it. He says, this statement, today, verse 21, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This statement is one of the most amazing statements in Luke's Gospel and one of the most radical claims that Jesus ever made. Jesus is saying, Isaiah's prophecy was about me. It was fulfilled in me. I am the anointed one. By the way, that's what the word Messiah means. Messiah is just the Hebrew word translated the anointed one. And and, and it's the Greek word, the Christ. Those, Those words are all the same. The Christ is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. They all mean what? The anointed one. Well, we don't really talk like that today, do we? Well, most of us don't, unless you got like a crazy Pentecostal friend. <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding. Lighten up, guys. <laughs> the anointed one. What's that even mean? Well, the one who has been anointed for God's special plan and purposes. Anointed how? Anointed by whom? Look at this verse. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me. Who's anointed me? The Spirit has anointed Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? He's the one the Holy Spirit of God has anointed perfectly. Man, it's good. And let's not skip the context here. What's being described here in this beautiful, glorious, messianic passage that Jesus quotes is actually something called in the Old Testament the year of Jubilee. 
And we're not going to dig into it too deeply, but if you want to look more into the year of Jubilee, it's a beautiful thing. You can go to Leviticus chapter 25 and read all about it there. See, according to the law of God in the book of Leviticus, every 50th year was a special year of celebration for God's people Israel. It was a year called Jubilee. I'll just read you a snippet, just a a little taste of what the Jubilee was all about. This is from Leviticus 25.10. God writes, You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty. Sound familiar? Liberty throughout the land, to all its inhabitants, it shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clans. This is what Jesus is referring to when he reads the prophecy here in verse 19. He's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. He's saying, hey guys, jubilee is here. The... uh, The Reformed Expository Commentary, a very helpful resource for Bible study, says it this way. I think this is a helpful summary to to connect the dots with this year of Jubilee. They write, The Jubilee was a year of amnesty when, when slaves were set free from their servitude. It was a year of redemption when debtors were released from their financial obligations. And it was a year of restoration when lost property was returned to its rightful owners. What Isaiah prophesied was a jubilee that was coming to end all other jubilees. And Jesus steps in and says, yeah, that whole year of the jubilee thing in Leviticus, that was about me. That was about what I have come to do. He is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. Amen? Alright, what do we do about this? How do, we, how do we not just hear this information and walk away with some interesting facts about the law and about Jesus' connection to the law? How do we be doers of this word? Well, two things. If you're here today and you have not trusted that Jesus is who He is so blatantly and clearly saying that He is here, that He is the Messiah, the One who's come to save and to restore. Listen, to open the eyes of the blind. He's come to bring restoration and joy. Jubilee. If you've not accepted Christ as that all-powerful, all-saving, all-healing One, as, as the only source of your eternal confidence to be right with a holy and perfect God, then friend, I just want to plead with you. I'm not above that. I want to plead with you this morning to see and to believe in Jesus. He was speaking in Jewish terms, in a Jewish context, but his point was clear. When you see it, I am the promised one. I am the healer. I am the joy bringer. He is the only way, he'd say from his own mouth in John 14, 6, the only truth, the only source of life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to heaven but through Jesus. If you're here, no matter what your age, no matter what your background, no matter what baggage you may be bringing with you, if you're here today, I want to implore you 
Follow Jesus. Trust Jesus. Believe in this Messiah. He's the only one who can save and restore you to a right relationship with God. That's one application. But for many of us in this room who have done this, praise God, as a result of His kindness and His grace, because He has already opened your eyes, the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy, what ought we to do? Well, I think one simple thing, one simple way for us to apply this passage is for you and for me to pray and to fight for joy. That we would seek, that we would yearn for joy to mark our lives. I'm just going to confess to you, friends, I struggle with this. I'm a little bit intense. And I'm prone in my intensity to sort of despondency when life's not going my way, when we're, we're not running fast enough. And I can look back. I repent as I look back over swaths of my life, even, even my life in Christ, and say, Lord, oh, how I have grumbled as You have led me. When we look at Jesus and who He proclaims Himself to be, we see very clearly in this passage, He's the bringer of joy. He's the one who's come to usher in jubilee. And yes, sometimes, again, maybe it's not just me, maybe sometimes it's the church at large, it's probably not a stretch to say that as people observe the church or church folk, they could say, man, never really picked the word joy to describe that guy's life or that girl's life. Ask yourself, if I see who Jesus is rightly, here, who he's proclaimed himself to be, am I carrying with me, because of who he is and what he's done, am I carrying a joy that marks my life? That's a convicting question for me. I've got to grow here in this area. But it's in the text, and so I'm just confessing to you, I need this, and, and I, I would, I'd be willing to wager that some of you do as well. Let's, as we see and savor the, the Messiah who has come to bring Jubilee, let's pray that the Lord would give us a deep and undergirding of joy, just bubbling out of our life, regardless of our circumstances. After all, one of the things, the Spirit who has anointed Him, the same Spirit which He has caused to live in us, is supposed to do, one of the, the manifestations of fruit that He bears in our lives, vis-a-vis Galatians 5, is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is Love, joy, peace, it's many-fold. If you don't know what's going on in my life, you're probably right. And the testimony of this book is that despite circumstance, Paul and Silas, Acts 16, chained in a Roman prison cell, fastened to the stocks, they think their life, may not, they may not live to see another day. Singing in jail. What would possess you to do that? You got like some kind of masochistic mindset of life. You just like pain. You got some spiritual screw loose. No, it's the joy of the Lord that does that. May we pray. May we seek to grow 
in this area that Christ has come to bring us. He came that our joy might be complete and in Him. All right, last big piece of the puzzle. I think it's important for us to hit here in this passage as it relates to Jesus' sermon, of course, is the response. Boy, oh boy, what a response. Notice how it's almost like this little synagogue in Nazareth has got whiplash. You just whip from one posture to the, to the next, to the next. At first, we read, they marvel at the grace and the power of Jesus' words. Marvel. And, and then, things start to shift pretty quickly. And it really downshift pretty quickly. It hits them. Wait a minute. Isn't this the, the carpenter's son? And things go at a fairly quick clip from marvel to mumble to murder. Right? Well, attempted murder, anyway. That's what's in their heart. It's just like Jesus says in verse 24 here, a prophet's not without honor in his own hometown. Now I love that the Lord gives us different gospel accounts, some with a different emphasis or different details as it relates to similar accounts other places. And at this place in Scripture, the Gospel of Matthew actually gives us a little bit more color as to why people began to grow so discontent, why they began to balk at Jesus' words here in this hometown sermon. Let's Let's read it together. Matthew 13. I'll, just, I'll read it unless you want to follow it. I've got the reference there up on the screen for you. Keep a thumb either way in, uh, in Luke 4. Matthew 13, 58, or 53 excuse me, to 58. And when Jesus had finished these parables, He went away from there. And coming to His hometown, where's that now? Nazareth. Galilee of Nazareth. Nazareth of Galilee. He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Listen, is this not the carpenter's son? And then Matthew gives us some more questions that they were asking, just a little bit more details. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And listen, he did not do many mighty works there because, reason, because of their unbelief. See what's happening? They took offense, and Jesus, because of their offense, because of their unbelief, did not do many miracles there in his very own town, his hometown of Nazareth. I think we should note also that Jesus' allegiance is just not tethered to, it's not tied to the things that this world expects us to value. All the people in Jesus' hometown are expecting him to be on Team Nazareth, right? He's, this is home. 
But instead of giving them preferential treatment, Jesus shocks them with two jarring examples. You can read about them here in our passage. The first, well, two prophets. The prophet Elijah, he references an account from 1 Kings 17. He said, listen, there was lots of widows in Elijah's time. Prophet, uh, a time of drought, three and a half years. We talk about an economic downturn. Whew. Things were desperate. People were dying. And Jesus said, God, God didn't send them to any of those widows in Israel, but to a widow in the Gentile region. Dale Ralph Davis calls it Pagansville. Zarephath. You just kind of sense. I don't, we don't see this in the text, but a collective gasp from the crowd. Not Zarephath. They're from the other side of the tracks. Pagan. He continues. And in the ministry of the life of Elisha, this is from 2 Kings chapter 5, there was lots of lepers in Israel, but the only one who God cleansed was a pagan wicked man named Naaman, who was leader of the general of the army that was opposed to the nation of Israel. Why in the world would God heal him? And Jesus is saying, do you hear what I'm saying? He's making his point loud and clear. God had passed by. He had passed over his people elsewhere in Scripture. And Jesus says, I'm about to do the same thing here. There would be no spectacular lineup of miracles in his hometown. No banners flying from the local gymnasium with Jesus' spectacular deeds. This is an apt reminder to us, I think, friends, that the way that the Most High God sovereignly chooses to work is often different than what we would choose. It's often altogether different. It's otherly. Think about the who of Jesus' ministry. The who of His working. Well, He's ministering to the least of these. He's ministering here to the foreigners, not to the people He grew up with in hometown Nazareth. Think about the where of Jesus' ministry. Again, not in his hometown. Those pagans. Think about the when of his working. Jesus will say later to his brothers when they're saying, hey, go up to Jerusalem. Anybody who wants to make it big goes to the big city. Go up to Jerusalem at the feast. He said, listen, any time's good for you. Not me. I'm following the will of my Father here. Think about the how of Jesus' ministry. The radical humility that He, that he chose to embody. And the end result of God manifesting His work in different, in altogether foreign and otherly ways to us, here, is not just that people would say, huh, yes, that guy's out to lunch. It wasn't indifference here, was it? Their response is murder. Or attempted murder. The bottom line here, folks, is that there is no such thing. We see this here and all throughout, bracketed all throughout Scripture. There is no such thing as a neutral response to Jesus. You're either for Him or you're against Him. His, his enemy. Everything you do, whether you know it or not, is framed either through your hatred 
of God's Son or your love for Him. You're either going to kiss the Son or you're going to try to kill Him. There's only two options. Perhaps not always in ways that we're aware. We don't see how our actions are leading toward one of these two ultimate ends. Jesus says this. This is a little bit later in his ministry. I was, I was reading this week through John, not looking for fodder in my sermon, just, just reading devotionally through the book of John. And, and I was reading through John 7 and John 8, and Jesus says multiple times, why are you trying to kill me? And there's nobody like with nails or a spike or at that point in, in, in the gospel. Why are you trying to kill me, he says. And they look at him like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Nobody's trying to kill you. You got a demon or something? What's wrong with you? No, you, you are trying to kill him. Just give it time. Play this out to its logical ultimate end. Your rebellion against God. See what it manifests in, in its full and final form. Jesus says in, in, in John 8, listen, you're, you're just like your father the devil, trying to kill me. He was a murderer from the beginning, and so are you. Them's fighting words, right? No, matter, no wonder Jesus rattled some cages. And do you really think, think about just 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 logically for a moment, do you really think that the very people who sat down at the beginning of this synagogue service, imagine the call to worship in this service, do you think that those people thought that at the end of that service, they'd be trying to push Jesus off a cliff? Hometown boy, a bit of a local celebrity now, doing some pretty cool stuff? No. They sat down thinking, hey, let's hear, let's hear from the hometown kid. This is great. And they left thinking, I'm going to kill him. This is like a bit of a jump, don't you think? How about those people, Easter's coming, how about those people on Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem? Do you think the people who are literally laying palm branches down, symbols of victory before Him, symbols of kingship saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, do you think those very same people doing that thought that, a week later, they would find their own voices crying out, Crucify Him! Jesus knows what He's talking about. You're either going to kiss the Son, you're going to fall at His feet in love and adoration, or your aversion to Him, your rebellion against Him, would ultimately end and you trying to kill him. On the flip side, we should end, I think, on the flip side. We see here, opposed to Jesus' hometown crowd, only because He's opened our eyes to see Him, only because of the grace that He's given to us through His death on the cross and His resurrection, that when we stand in Christ, we should see our lives as wanting to love and serve God in everything we do. Every decision you make, every work call you fulfill, every time you get up in the morning and you set your agenda for the day, in everything you do, your life is designed to honor 
Him. That's what Colossians says. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. For a few verses later, we read in verses 24 and 25 of Colossians 3, whatever you do, again, work heartily. Why? Why should you work hard at everything you do? As for the Lord, you're working for God. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Make no mistake about it, friends. All of life is moving toward one of two terminal ends, loving Jesus or hating Him. He came to His own, and His own received Him not. And then, I love this, the whole thing ends with verse 30. As mysterious as it is, I mean, they're ready to kill Him, Maybe the people that taught him in, in Hebrew school, his teachers, his relatives. I don't know who these people are, but these are his people. They know him. They know him. They're naming his family members. They go from tr- mob mentality, trying to push this guy off a cliff. By the way, that's sometimes the way they'd stone you, is they'd put you, push you off the highest hill in the area, and then when you're like broken down on the ground, they'd like hurl big rocks down on top of you. That's what they were intending to do here. <laughs> this mob who is intent on snuffing out Jesus' life is unsuccessful. Why? <laughs> because, well, as I say, passing through their midst, he went away. Come on, give me some more! Like, what did this look like? Was this some sort of like mysterious, like, did he go Spock, right? Star Trek just vanish? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. And and Scripture doesn't exactly tell us here, but I think we should take great comfort at the close of this passage here. Great assurance in knowing that our King, King Jesus, is unkillable. You know that, right? You can't kill Jesus. You, you, You just can't kill Him. He says, no one takes my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. This is the Lord we serve. And our simple plea all over again on this Lord's Day morning is that we would line our lives up behind Him. Body, soul, mind, and strength. He's come to bring His people jubilee. He's come to bring you joy. And So I think it's fitting that we close now after a time of prayer by singing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Indeed it is. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. You don't work like we would work. You don't do what we would imagine you doing. You don't follow our pattern, our design for thinking. And we just want to pause here this morning to say thank you. Thank you that your ways are perfect. Thank You that Your love is so sacrificial that You being in in nature, God very God, didn't seek to to serve Yourself, to to stay up in the glories of heaven, but You stooped down. You condescended to, to, to endure this mocking, this nonsense. All of our inconsistency and unbelief. Christ, thank You for Your obedience. 
Thank you for your life, which we could never live. Thank you for the spirit, which you've come to bring us through your death and burial and resurrection. We pray now, Lord, would you make us joyful people? You tell us here in this passage that you've come to usher in jubilee, eternal jubilee. And we have tasted Christ and seen that you're good. Would you teach us when things are going well and when they're not? When we're tired and when we're doing just fine. What it means to savor, to revel in your kindness and goodness. Lord, do do work in our hearts now as we, your people, sing a prayer and declare to you, Christ, it's so sweet to trust you. So sweet to follow you. Make us those people by the power of your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.